This is the Traditionalist, the Victor Davis Hanson podcast. I'm Jack Fowler, the former publisher at National Review, talking today with Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also the Wayne and Marsha Busk Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is the best-selling author of many books, military historian, forthcoming book we want to encourage our listeners to check out that is the dying citizen that's out in october but it's available now on amazon victor we've got a lot to talk about today of foreign policy and things israel and things jewish are on our agenda my former colleague at national review david harsani wrote an excellent piece This report in many other places about what David calls a wave of Jew hatred, which has broken out across the United States. Jews or perceived Jews in New York City and Los Angeles are being attacked by these Palestinian flag-waving mobs, you know, roving the streets. If people were Muslim being attacked in the streets of New York and Los Angeles, you'd sure as hell hear about it, but not much on this. Victor, you've written two pieces for American Greatness on the left's hatred for Israel, the almost plans, it seems like, to ensure Middle East war. So we're going to talk about those two and a piece by Daniel Greenfield, who's a journalist at the Harwood Center, who's got a very important piece, I think, on the Biden administration's taking on of staffing with Israel haters. So, But let's begin this, Victor, with elaborating on a column you've written It's a question. Why does the left hate Israel? This you've written for American Greatness, and it ends with a very disturbing line. Hating Israel has become the surrogate Western way of hating oneself. Victor, why does the left hate Israel? There's a variety of reasons. I don't think they hated it quite as much in the 1950s as they did now because they feel that so-called underdogs or victims. And when Israel was in its process of formation in its first decades, and it was surrounded by these enemies, we were in the Cold War, then they naturally sympathized to them, at least up till 56. And then when they allied themselves with France or Britain or the United States, <laughs> the empathy started to fade. That was one. That was certainly one element. And now that Israel's powerful and independent and unapologetic, muscular, then they feel that you know, they, they should lend Iron Dome to the Palestinians to protect them from their boomeranging rockets, or they should say, you know what, okay, Israeli, Netanyahu should get on TV and say, you know what, we've only lost 12 dead, so I'm calling a timeout for Iron Dome. We need to get that casualty rate up or fatality rate up to match the power. That's how they look, view it. That's one thing. So they this weird idea that war is proportionate or symmetrical has never been true, but in the mind of the left, it's always true. Then there's this idea that Westerners can't live outside the West. And by that, I mean, you can have a million illegal aliens flock in from the Middle East into Germany, Belgium, and and France in the last three or four years, but you can't have Israelis in in anywhere other, even though they were there for 5,000 years, some of them were at least. So that's, that's another element. Of course, when I finished that piece, I said Westerners tend in their affluence and security and prosperity tend to take the elements of their culture for granted to the extent that they can, you know, destroy them. And they think that they'll go on an autopilot. And so in their way of thinking, we're decadent, we're racist, we're homophobic, we're sexist, and 
Israel is an extension of that. They're the Minneapolis Police Department. The Palestinians are George Floyd or Michael Floyd. That's how they view it in simplistic binary terms. But most importantly, Jack, and here's what I'm in my windy reply to you is getting to, is that there is this anti-Semitism. And they said, well, anti-Semitism is not is anti-Israelism. And then as soon as they say that, these things keep peeping out. Remember Ilan Omar said it's the Benjamin's baby. And then we had... AOC's weird map that didn't seem to have Israel on it. We right. had Rashida Tlaib talking about Jews whose first loyalties were not to the United States. And then more importantly, it's a disproportionate focus. So we've got all these protesters in our major cities, and you know what they're not protesting? A million Wegers put in concentration camps by uh, the producer of a lot of the junk they buy, China. You know what they're not talking about uh, the refugees from about 1947, 48, uh, the 12 million East Prussians that walked back into Germany, who apparently don't wave their keys and say, this is my house in Danzig, and the Volga Germans that Stalin relocated. And my group that I'm very empathetic are the, the Greek Cypriots that were ethnically cleansed. It's only, it's only Palestinians. And why is that? And I think it's because their oppressors were Jew. And just finishing, when you talk about all these incidents of anti-Semitism, remember what a hate crime is to the left. A hate crime to the left is only described by the victimizer. If a person of a protected, marginalized, non-white, binary, white male group is victimizing a group in hate fashion, that's not a hate crime. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that Palestinians are doing it to if these were southern rednecks maybe we would say it was anti-semitic but if blacks are attacking asians then that's not a hate crime it's more the the attacker really than even the attack so palestinians have become in one of the most strange but brilliant propaganda moves i think in my lifetime and i saw it happen on the campus in the 1990s and 2000 early 21st centuries their cause which was basically embraced by autocrat countries and dictatorships on the West Bank, became fused with Native Americans, gays, women as the oppressed. And that's now deeply embedded in leftist orthodoxy. So you point out a clear hatred of Israel is an is a aspect of the left. Self-hatred is an aspect of the left. But also in this piece, hypocrisy is an attribute of the left. Here's a quick sentence you wrote. The left in general believes we should judge harshly even the distant past without exemptions. There's two sentences, really. Why then, in venomous, knee-jerk fashion, does it fixate on a nation born from the Holocaust while favoring Israel's enemies who were on the side of the Nazis in World War II? Yeah, I mean, we're going back to 1861 to say that we were toxic because of uh, the, you know, the slavery wasn't uh, wasn't even a question of of armed conflict until 1861. But the Nazis aren't that long ago. And remember, the Grand Mufti was a Hitler acolyte. Hitler liked them. Hitler, in various times in his uh, chancellery and then later in his dictatorship, said he admired radical Islamists because they were a warrior culture and they had one thing in common: they hated Jews. He said. Right. And, he, and he favored them. And the Egyptian government brought in a lot of Nazis, Otto Skorinsky, Hitler's SS handyman that did everything from rescue Mussolini, sure, to right. commit 
crimes of you know murder under the guise of war. He was a adv- military advisor of the Egyptian government. And so to the left, it was, it's really strange. It said, history never leaves us. We're all carrying the burdens of our historical sins. But you know what? Hamas, who's, by the way, Jack, if you, I just read the other day because I had remembered it. I read the Hamas 1988-89 charter. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much crib from Nazi ideology. It's just simply a diatribe about the Jews. And it's really is anti-Semitic and full of hatred. But the point that I'm making is that to the left, it doesn't really matter that this radical anti-Israeli Islamic Arab movement has Nazi roots to it. And we're not supposed to think of the past. We think of the past, everybody else, but not in this situation. Right. They are perpetual victims and refugees. Well, Victor, related to the uh, ideological disposition is... Um, the practical influence of the left in its hatred of Israel through the Biden administration. So that's why we maybe we talk a little bit about this piece by Daniel Greenfield. Uh, he's got his own website, danielgreenfield.org. He's a journalist at the David Horowitz Freedom Center. And he uh, puts some uh, names to positions uh, within the Biden administration By the way, he writes here, Israel had a brief break from America acting as the paymaster and bagman for the terrorists, which, of course, implies that now we're back being the paymaster and bagman. Four names quickly. One is Haiti Amr. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the name right, but that is Joe Biden's point man on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict Amr, a Lebanese anti-Israeli activist, has made no secret of his raving hatred for Israel and support for the terrorists. I was inspired by the Palestinian Intifada. This is Biden's point man. Uh, Three other officials who are in important positions in the administration. Maher Batar, that's Biden's senior director for intelligence. Pictured dancing in a kefiyah. I'm not sure if I said that right. In front of a banner reading, divest from... Israel apartheid. Then there's Rima Dodin, Biden's deputy White House legislative director, who has argued that suicide bombers were the last resort of a desperate people. And the last person here is Sarah Margon, Biden's assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor, who had advocated for boycotts of Israel and cheered a proposal to destroy the Jewish state. These are Biden administration officials intimately involved in foreign policy. Victor, your thoughts? Well, in Biden's defense, if you read him those four names, he would have no idea who they were. So true. (laughs) Somebody put them in there. And don't forget Robert Malley, right? M-A-L-L-E-Y, I think it's spelled. Yes. Biden's Obama retread, now point man, I guess, on the Iran deal. Let's be honest, Jack. The left now, and we we just saw that recent poll where the greater number of Democrats favor the idea that Israel caused this war and that Hamas is not the cause of it. And it's just it's just the flip side when you look at Republicans and conservatives. And so let's be honest, this Democratic Party as it's presently constituted is an anti-Israeli party and maybe even anti-Semitic party. And that, that raises a really good question, Jack, because traditionally Jewish Americans were pro Democratic and, and member members, active members of the Democratic liberals. But what happens when they see Palestinian youth, toughs, get out of cars in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Los Angeles and beat up Jews or try to knock their tables over as if it's 
1936 in Berlin. And what happens when Joe Biden, knowingly or not, has his entire Middle East policy in the hands of the people you're talking about? And so if you're a Jewish American, do you really want to support that? I think it brings up an even more fundamental existential issue, and that is, I think after three or four generations in America, like most immigrant groups, I mean, there is no Greek lobby today to speak of. It's been all fully assimilated and intermarried, which played a powerful role in uh, the 1973-74 crisis in American foreign policy. But what I'm getting at is a lot of younger Jews, when you look at bylines and people who are very critical of Israel, a lot of them are Jewish left-wingers, and they believe that Israel and their Jewishness are an albatross around their left-wing necks, and they're embarrassed of it. They don't want any part of it, and at best, they're indifferent to Israel. At worst, they're very critical of it. The older Jewish-American community is increasingly considered an old, a bunch of old white guys like everybody else that the right. left looks at. So I don't see a group within the Democratic Party as advocates for Israel. And in that vacuum or that reality is a better word. You have the AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, all that group. And they don't like Israel. And I was watching Fox. I don't know if you caught, maybe our listeners did, that crazy. Did you see that segment with Geraldo Rivera where he just started screaming and then he threw us a crunched up paper at the camera and turned his back. I mean, it was the most asinine, yeah. puerile exhibition I've ever seen. And his whole point was they're killing children, they're killing children, they're killing children. And I guess he meant that when they take a rocket battery and shoot it into Tel Aviv and it's right. in the middle of a playground or a nursery school or an apartment building, the Israelis who usually call the building and say, get out, are supposed to have a... a bomb or a shell so accurate that it can go right into the launcher and then incinerate the shooter only and nobody else gets hurt because they know the consequences of it. And if that if you were to follow Geraldo's logic, they might as well say, you know what, we're just going to let Iron Dome work and we're just going to be defense. We're just going to kind of sit here in our shelters for the next three weeks and take four, five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand. So they run out and we'll see if our missile defense. That's, that was basically what he was advocating. Right. And so this is a very strange thing. Uh, every time these things break out, you say to yourself, if you were an Arab and you're living in Israel and you're attacking Jews right now in a country that you vote and you have constitutional protected freedoms and you can go out in the street and say, I hate Israel or I hate Netanyahu inside Israel, but you go through the wall and you go to the Palestinian Authority or better yet Hamas and you say, I don't like Hamas you're going to be dead right. or attacked. And yet there's no sense of that disconnect, either here in the United States or among Arabs on the West Bank in general. But, but if you were to say you have a choice to go back and live with the Palestinians, none of them would. I say that because in one visit to Israel, I was driving with an IDF member, and it was during the Sharon Wall. Remember that wall was being right. built? It was 2006, and we went up to the northern part, and there were all these protesters. And he said, well, we've got to be careful. We're going through an area where there's very hostile anti-Israeli feeling. And I said, aren't we in? Aren't we in Israel? Right. Very close to the green line. He said, uh, yeah. And he was matter of fact. And I said, what are they protesting? 
oh, well, they're afraid that we're going to work out a deal where X number of uh, acres around Jerusalem that are quote unquote occupied will be inside the wall. And then in compensation uh, with our European and American interlocutors, we're going to carve out some of 1967, not not touch people's homes. No, no, right. no, no, none of that. But they, they're going to get their wish and, and not have to live in the hated Israel. They'll be incorporated into the Palestinians. And so I said, they're protesting because it's not fast enough. Are you reading? No, no, no. They're protesting because we want to give them their wish and they don't want their wish. Right. They want, they do not want to live with Arafat. They do not want to live under Palestinian rule because they have good jobs. They have free speech. They have good pensions. So that's the disconnect. It reminds me so much of people that I, I meet here who have come illegally into the United States and I would have students and they would, be here four or five years, and they would already be be mouthing this anti-American, you're racist, uh, nativist, all that stuff. It's, it's really a bizarre psychological mechanism. Well, Victor, we were talking about a small, I don't know if we want to call it a, a war yet, but clearly military action that's happening right now. But you've taken to American Greatness this week to write a significant essay, How to Ensure a Middle East War in five easy steps. And I'm going to give it away what the five easy steps are, but there's a question at the end of this. So the first step is to revive Iran, then to discourage Arab moderates. The third step, reboot corrupt Palestinian dictatorships. Then number four, adopt globalist moral equivalents. And step five, do the exact opposite of the Trump administration. Victor, I just want to read a little, a quick little passage here that you you wrote in this essay. Adhere to all five steps, and we will likely see a major Middle East war that has started with Hamas rockets and will accelerate to internal terrorist attacks against Israel, intensifying with Hezbollah launching rockets from Lebanon and Syria, peaking with Iranian missile attacks and globalist terrorist missions, all sanctioned by Russia and Chinese propaganda as the United States goes mute and ending when Israel goes medieval on Iran to ensure its own existence. And then you ask a question, Victor, is such a scenario alarmist or fantastical? Victor, I don't think it is. Would you answer that question? That no, you, I, I you was asked? serious. I mean, yeah. I think I said, if you think it's fantastical or impossible, it's like saying that people who print two or three trillion dollars of new money and then discourage production but won't get inflation. So, yeah, we it's predictable. And we know what Israel is going to do. There's not going to be a second Holocaust. Everybody knows that. Right. And so if Hamas were, were to continue and break this ceasefire, and would it be, be joined by Hezbollah? And would Iran send things in? Then Israel would act and we would have a full-scale war. It wouldn't last very long, but we'd have a full-scale war. So it's very important that, I, I mean, I was against the ceasefire because whether we're going to have another round of this depends on what happened on the West Bank, or particularly in Gaza. And by that, I, we don't know yet. But one of two scenarios has happened. They are in a state of ebullition. If you see now that they're saying they won, the Palestinians because right. they sent 4,000 rockets and it doesn't matter 3,800 of them were knocked down. There, some got through and they gave them their wish of killing Jews. But the point I'm making is that 
is that going to be deterred or in a cost-benefit analysis, did they think it was worth it? And I think as they walk around Gaza now, Gaza City for the next month, and they ask them, themselves questions like, where is Hamas commander number one? Have you seen Hamas commander number 28? Uh, where is that subterranean tunnel with all the, the, the great stuff? And is it still there? Where is the media center? And if they're not there, are they gone? Are they missing? Are they vanished? Are they evaporated? Then people will slowly come to the conclusion, well, that wasn't too smart in a cost-benefit analysis. Who did this? And then there will be peace until the 12-year-old is 18 and in six, five or six years and says, oh, I don't remember any of that. I just want to kill Jews again. Let's go to it. And so we've got kind of a punic war where we have all of these iterations of attack, peace, attack, peace, attack, peace. The Israelis or people say, you know, it's like mowing the lawn. And it goes on forever until one side or the other gets tired. And that means Israelis finally say, you know what, I'm tired of mowing the lawn. Or the Palestinians say, you know what, I don't want to be mowed every three or four years. I quit or I've got a new weapon and I'm going to escalate. But the subtext of all this, Jack, is deterrence. And deterrence means that nobody really knows what the exact power and resources are of relative belligerence. Israel didn't really know how many rockets they had. And they didn't really know the capability of Iron Dome. And war solves that laboratory experiment by clarifying who was strong and who was weak. Turns out that the Iron Dome was really well. It turns out they had a lot more rockets than anybody imagined. But the reason that they took that risk is they didn't know who was strong and who was weak. And the reason they didn't know that is the United States came in and 150 days said, we're going to start the Iran deal. We're going to with sanctions. We're not going to have a blockade. We're going to give $400 million as a down payment to the $700 million to the Palestinians. We're going to practice moral equivalence. We're going to start lecturing Israel and the Palestinians. So, hmm, if we were to do this, there's a good chance that the moment we decided it wasn't going our way, we could cry that they were genocidal and this new administration would stop Israel. Or our friends in the United States will have unfettered ability to cast us as heroes and the Jews as these horrible people in the administration will either ignore that or before it. So we gave the impression to the Palestinians they had more to gain than lose by starting up another round. Well, Victor, we have a few more minutes here. Let's shift to another adversary of the United States, which is China, which I would contend is the adversary. So at Hoover, you are the, uh, we'll call it editor in chief or the editorial big shot of an online publication called Strategica. I recommend folks go to the Hoover website to check it out. Issue 72 came out recently, and it's about Red China's uh, woke propaganda efforts directed at America. There are several pieces in there, ones by Miles Yu, another's by our good friend uh, Chris O'Day. But would you talk about this issue of Strategica and why it's worth our listeners reading these pieces? Well, usually an adversary that tries to craft an effective anti-American propaganda is not very effective. The Soviet Union was very clumsy, you know, red China, running dog capitalist. Bin Laden, you know, he said that we, I think he and Dr. Zawahiri he said that we attacked America because of climate change and mm-hmm. lack of uh, 
federal financing of campaigns. That's in uh, Raymond Ibrahim's <laughs> reader. Yeah. So it's pretty transparent. But the difference in China is that A, it's fabulously wealthy, and B, it has about 370,000 students here at all of our major universities who are completely infused or they're absorbed by American popular culture, and they understand the American leftist mind, or they understand the American media mind. And so for them, we saw that with COVID brilliantly, how they basically said the Trump's China virus or Trump's Wuhan virus was reminiscent of the yellow peril scale scale of the 19th century or the exploitation of Chinese workers or how other people were treated terribly. And this anti-Asian hate crime spree is because of Trump. And it really resonated. And now what they're doing is they looked at the United States and they thought, you know, we're going to tie because they want to weaken the United States. I don't think they really care who wins in the Middle East other than the Arabs tend to be more of them and they have more money, so they were better markets, so therefore they're going to tilt toward the perceived enemies, even though they may get that wrong, of Israel. But in their way of thinking, they're going to use that propaganda. They've mastered it, that Israel is a white, Western, pro-American, Trumpian, Netanyahu, right-wing group, and the Palestinians are people of color, they're marginalized, they've been ostracized, they're helpless, and they need help. And we as Chinese are going to help them morally, economically, etc. That's their message to the United States. And that's why that and other things like them are why the NBA lectures us that we're illiberal, why they create $5 billion in market profiteering from China that puts the Uyghurs in concentration camps, or why the Warriors ignoramus coach Steve Stephen Kerr, I think it was, who lectured us about mass shootings in America. And so we we have no moral right to criticize the Chinese. So that it's a combination of their global clout, financial population, economic, coupled with a very keen and cynical understanding of American popular culture and finalized by the naivete and the receptivity of the left for that sort of lie, uh, canned lies. Victor, again, the Zoom gods have constricted us this week. Say la vie, but I want to recommend that folks do go to American Greatness to check out your column and your essay. Also at the Hoover Institution website, which is hoover.org. Search for Strategica, and this is issue 72. It's well worth the read. Go to Amazon, The Dying Citizen. That's your forthcoming book. And that's about all the time we have to say anything. So, Victor, thanks so much. Thank you, Jack. And thank all the listeners for turning into our new platform. And we'll be back soon with the next episode of the Victor Davis Hansen podcast, The Traditionalist. The Traditionalist.